Well, you know, when uh, you're a preacher, it's really great to have music that kind of goes along with your sermons. The problem is Edward is really faithful, but I'm not. And so it's really hard for him to get practiced up and get all the music together to kind of line up with what I'm going to preach on because I'm so unreliable. Uh, I, I try to guess what I'm going to be preaching on, and I, I, I'm planned out theoretically three or four months in advance, but it just never works out. But today I did. In the providence of God, it worked out, and actually the music and what we sang is going to fit the passage perfectly. And so turn to Luke chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 43 to 45. This year on the side of my house, I, I planted these grapevines. They're really more like grape sticks. Um, you, you know, you buy them and you wonder, is it alive? And you, you put them in there and then you wonder and then they you know, slowly start, start growing. And I've grown grapes in the past. And, and usually you don't get any grapes for two or three years. But the amazing thing, I have one little anemic bunch of grapes on my grapevine this year. But that, that's kind of unusual for first year um, grape growing. And uh, I would be pretty foolish if I were to go out there and say, well, they don't have any big bunches of grapes all over, so I'm digging them out and putting new ones in. Uh, you do that, you'd be planting new grapes every year until death. Uh, everybody knows that, that grows grapes, that they just don't start getting with it for two or three years. The same is true of, of fruit trees. The same is true of a lot of things. You just, they have to get established and then you can kind of see, you know, what they're going to produce. But no matter what, if you plant something in the right spot and give it the proper care, uh, whether it's a fruit tree or a grapevine or whatever, it's going to produce what it's supposed to produce. And I am never going to be able to go to my side yard and pick some apples off my grapevines. It just doesn't happen. Grapes don't do that. And the whole point of growing something is to get whatever you're supposed to get from whatever it is you're planting. And the whole farming community relies upon this. Farmers plant a certain kind of seed because they want a certain kind of crop and they expect a certain kind of crop. And, you know, that's how it works. They want to get the most produce from the least amount of space. Now, if a farmer plants the same varieties as his neighboring farmers and experiences the same weather as his neighbors, and yet year after year he has crop failure, then all his neighbors know, and the bank knows, this guy is a lousy farmer. He doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, that's pretty clear. His weedy fields, his silted-in irrigation canals, his poorly maintained equipment, his poor decisions, uh, one after another, lead to crop failure. And all this tells us that a farmer is known by the condition of his equipment, his fields, and his produce. That is so clear. Everyone knows that. In the same way Jesus is known... By the condition of his followers. Think about that one. Jesus is known by the condition of his followers. His reputation, his name is either honored or dishonored by how you and I live our lives. How we live our lives tells the world about the one whom we claim to live for. We are God's sheep, his temple, his bride, his vine. And so, 
What does the world see when it looks at us? I mean, after all, what do they know about the great shepherd, the great high priest, our heavenly vine dresser by looking at our lives? It is imperative that we live in such a way that we bring honor and glory to God. And this is what Jesus is after in the Sermon on the Mount. He wants us to get down to true holiness and true righteousness. Not that shallow, superficial, look at me, selfish righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, but righteousness from the heart. Righteousness that wants to give glory and honor to God. And we've been looking on the Sermon on the Mount, or as Luke calls it, the Sermon on the Plain, because Jesus went up on the mountain and had everybody sit down on the plain. And we have noticed that Luke and Matthew include different things. Each of them don't include everything Jesus said, but they each include different things that fit the theme and thrust of their particular gospel. And Luke includes Jesus giving four beatitudes followed by four woes and then gives a rather lengthy section describing uh, how we are to respond as we live in a sin-cursed world among sin-cursed men who often hate us and persecute us for doing what is right. And so Jesus wants us to respond correctly because his name is at stake. Because if we claim to be Jesus's and followers of Jesus and we live in an ungodly way, we tell everybody Jesus is a bad farmer. So having established that we need to be godly in the face of persecution, Jesus then begins to discuss our lives, our words, how we live in general. And this is kind of the end concluding place that Luke is going to leave the Sermon on the Mount. He wants us to be thinking, as we have heard all of these things, this big idea. We represent Jesus. Now, contrary to what most churches are teaching today, being a Christian is not merely about escaping the wrath of God and going to heaven and being blessed for all eternity. I mean, it is about that. I mean, that's great. That's one of the benefits of being saved. The consumer organized church strives to market the gospel like any other product you would buy and tries to present Christianity as the best alternative among competing religions and other brands of belief systems. And the focus in these churches is about what you can get out of Jesus. What you can get out of church. What God can do for you. How great it's going to be that if you buy this product called Christianity, God is going to do some great things for you and you're going to be glad you chose this product over another one. But really, it's not about you. It's about God. It's about God's glory. It's about Christ. It's about His name, His church, His reputation. He is the one who, for no other purpose than love, unmerited, undeserved love died on the cross to purchase for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. He owns us. He bought us. And we are his to do with as he wants. And when you live your life in an ungodly way, 
It causes problems because it gives all the people who don't love God and who are looking at Christianity and the church and what Jesus and the Bible are all about. And as Paul says in Romans 2.24, speaking about the ungodly Jews, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Their ungodly behavior made the Gentiles scoff at the God of Israel and blaspheme God. Well, it's the same thing is true of your life and my life. We say we love Jesus. We say we're followers of Jesus. We say we believe the Bible and then we don't do what God says and then everybody blasphemes God because the old Christians are this, but they say they believe that. And you need to remember that you are representing Jesus and that is a big deal. Whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, you are to do it all for what? The glory of God. That's right. The glory of God. I teach my children about this same thing in relation to our family. I tell them, listen, you go out there, you don't just represent you. You represent you and your brothers and sisters and me and your mother. And if you go back far enough, you get back to Jesus. You're representing Jesus. Parents, your children are a living demonstration of your faithfulness to the Lord in parenting. If your children are out of control, if they're the evil beasts and lazy gluttons like the Cretans, people will know something about your God and how you love your God by how you have raised your children. They know, well, you know, you think they would raise them to be like Jesus. I mean, doesn't the Bible say something about raising them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Look at these kids. So your children reflect your ability to parent, but more importantly than that, it reflects on your faithfulness to God. So Christians, by their actions, values, and words, demonstrate Christ's power to both save and sanctify sinners. So the degree to which you are holy is the degree that you bring honor and glory to God. You just ask yourself this, how faithful is God towards us? You know, 70%, 80, 90, 99. He's 100% faithful. He is 100% faithful, right? You know, what has God forgot to give us that we need in order to live for him? To escape every sin and every temptation which is so common to man. He hasn't forgot anything. God has given us all we need to live for him. And we know that. We've heard it all the time. So when people look at your life and think, okay, God has given them everything they need. They say they believe God's grace is sufficient. They talk about God's word being sufficient. But obviously it's not sufficient for them. And that is why Jesus, in this section, as he closes up the Sermon on the Mount, begins to land on this critical issue. That your life tells everybody about the God you serve. And that is why we need to be doing what God wants us to be doing. So look at Luke six forty three. I'm just going to read these three verses. They're pretty simple. But they have some really important implications. Verse 43. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. 
For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from briar bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Now you're going to learn about two important aspects of your life which tell the world about your heart and the one you claim to follow as Lord of your life. The first is, is your life reflects your true identity. Look at verse 43. Jesus says, for there is no tree, good tree, which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand, a bad tree, which produces good fruit. Now, first, we need to come to grips with the fact that Jesus is not giving us a little lesson here on botany. He's not concerned that we have agricultural prowess. Jesus knows we know what he's talking about here. He's using a comparison. He's using a metaphor. He's using the figure of speech. He assumes everyone knows that good trees produce good fruit. Otherwise, why would you call them good if they produce bad fruit? You don't have to go to Cal Poly and earn a degree in horticulture to figure that one out. And as we've seen before, Jesus is concerned with spiritual truths. So what Jesus is doing is taking something very common and simple very simple and comparing it to something spiritual and very important. Men are like trees is what he's driving at. And we see John the Baptist using this same comparison. Remember when he was speaking to the Pharisees, when he said in Luke three, nine, indeed, the ax is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. And they all knew what he was saying. You're the tree. You're not bearing good fruit. And the ax is coming. Jesus compared men to fig trees in Luke 13, verses 6 through 9. In John 15, Jesus compares men to branches of the vine that the, the father trims and takes care of. But if they don't produce fruit, what are? What are they going to have happen to them? Cut off into the fire. So if trees are men, then what is their fruit? This isn't hard either. It's how you live your life. The product of your life, your character, your words, your deeds, your life. What, what flows out of your life, how you live your life. John the Baptist he told the Pharisees to bring forth fruit. In keeping with repentance. And he wasn't talking about go get some, you know, cornucopia baskets. He's talking about life. Change your life. In keeping with true repentance. In John 15, the fruit God desires in our life, he trims us and prunes us that we might bear more fruit. And he's not talking about grapes there. He's talking about godly character. And Paul uses the same thing of, you know, in Romans 7, 4, Paul says that we have been saved to bear fruit for God. In Galatians 5, 22, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. In Philippians 1, 11, he talks about the fruit of righteousness. He talks about the Colossians in Colossians 1, 6 about bearing the fruit of righteousness and constantly bearing fruit. And he goes on to explain all of these character qualities in verse 10 about what that means, what that fruit actually is. So if trees are men and fruit is what men do, obviously good fruit are acts of righteousness. Bad fruit is acts of unrighteousness or evil or sin. The word bad, as it appears in the text here, is the Greek word sapros, the word we get septic from, as in septic tank. It actually means, you know, decayed, rotten, uh, spoiled, worthless, 
You know how it is when you're in your kitchen and all of a sudden it's like, what is that smell? So you start walking around, you know, and all of a sudden it leads you over to that fruit bowl where you have, you know, this nice little, you know, bunch of oranges, but you kind of look and you see one on the underneath side is just, you know, like the green plague. And so you carefully pick it up and you throw it away because it's rotten. It's rotten. That's what the word means. Rotten fruit. Bad trees produce rotten, worthless fruit. So in verse 43, Jesus is merely reminding us of the obvious fact that trees produce fruit in accordance to their kind. Switch over to what trees and fruit represent. You have people live according to their spiritual kind. Now it's getting a little bit clearer. You remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees in John eight forty four? He said, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. People live in accordance with the kind of person they are. Look at verse 44. Jesus now goes from general truths about trees and fruit in general. And then he says, for each tree is known by its own fruit. Now notice the switch here. Now he's talking about each tree and its own fruit. So he says, everybody knows this general principle. Good trees in general produce good fruit, bad trees, bad fruit. Now we're going to talk about specific trees and specific fruit that each tree produces. He's talking about individuals, me, you, and everyone you know. Jesus is tightening the noose. Look at verse, the middle of verse 44. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. You know, you go to the famous Napa Valley, you know, where they have all the the grapevines that they, you know, for making wine. And when harvest time comes, do the workers show up in their trucks and then, you know, look in the ditches for wild plants to see if they can harvest some grapes off the weeds in the ditches? No. No. What do they do? Well, they go to the grapevines. Why? Because you get grapes from grapevines. So it's in junior high vernacular, no brainer. It's such a no-brainer. Everybody knows that if you want to get some figs, you go to a fig tree. If you want to get grapes, you go to a grape tree. That You don't ever find any other thing on grapes but grapes and figs from figs. You know, the no-duh. And you may be thinking at this point, Jack, you know, did I get out of bed this morning and come here to learn this obvious thing? You know, uh, you may be thinking to yourself, I don't need you to tell me this. I mean, do they, you know, you go to seminary to look and learn this? I mean, no kidding. You know, uh, yeah, everybody knows this. Everybody knows this. And you know what? This is the brilliance of Jesus's argument. That's exactly Jesus's point. It is a no brainer that good trees produce good fruit and bad trees Produce bad fruit. It is a no-brainer that each tree is known by its own fruit, not the fruit of another tree. You don't say, whoa, look at this tree. 
It's got great fruit because the one next to it does. It is a no brainer that if you want grapes, you harvest from grapevines. You want figs, fig trees, because each tree produces according to its kind. So why is this important for you to know? You'll be thinking, yeah, 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 tell us. Okay, I will. You ever hear someone refer to their rebellious son or daughter as a Christian? You know, I have a son and, you know, he's been shacking up with his child of Satan girlfriend for three years. But he's saved. He's, he's, he's a Christian. I remember the day when he cried and went forward and prayed the sinner's prayer. He was six then. He was six. He's saved. You know, my grandparents, they don't go to church and they don't read their Bible and they don't serve the Lord. But they're saved. They're, they're, they're Christians. They're Christians. Oh, so-and-so never comes to church. I mean, they do every once in a while. They aren't really involved and they aren't exercising their spiritual gifts and they aren't giving and they don't read their Bible or study their Bible or go to a Bible study or a Sunday school class. They never share their faith with others, but they're Christians. Really? Really? You invite me over to your house to show me your dog. You keep your dog on top of your dresser in a small little wire cage. It has a long tail. It's very small. And it looks just like a rat. It has whiskers like a rat. It has a nose like a rat and body and feet like a rat. But you're convinced it's a dog. And you have trained it to come and sit and fetch. I mean, it even does things that dogs do. But I'm telling you, that does not make your rat a dog. And if I was your friend, I'd either clear up your delusion or denial and say, pal, (laughs) you've got Willard in that cage. That isn't Fido. Listen, I'm a parent. I love my kids. And I want my kids to go to heaven. I want everybody I know to go to heaven. I want people I don't know to go to heaven. And the thought of of my kids suffering in hell for all eternity when they've been raised in a Christian home, when they've been exposed to the gospel over and over and over again, You know, that's not a happy thought. But you know them by their fruit. You know them by their fruit. Not by what I say they are. Not merely by what they say they are. You know them by their passions. You know them by their conviction. You know them by what they love. You know them by what they do, how they speak. Grapes are not gathered from briars. Figs are not gathered from thorns. 
You know them by their fruit. This is taught in Matthew 3.10, Matthew 7.10, Luke 3.9, Luke 3.7, Luke, or Luke 13.7, 13.9, John 15.6. All the exact same thing. It's taught over and over again. And yet, I, I, you know, I hate to be the guy who pops the bubble. So I'm just trying to pop everybody's bubble right now. Pow, 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 pow. Your carnal friend, your carnal relative, your carnal son, your carnal daughter, I don't care what they did in the past. I don't care what they said. Good trees do not produce bad fruit. That is what the scriptures say over and over again. And bad trees don't produce good fruit. Turn over to Galatians 5. You may be wondering to yourself, well... You know, how am I supposed to you know, apply this? You know, how does this, I mean, what am I supposed to do about this information? Well, turn to Galatians 5. I think you're starting to figure it out already, but we'll make sure it's crystal clear. Galatians 5, verse 16. This is a common or well-known passage to a lot of people. Galatians 5, 16. Paul says this, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. As long as you're walking by the spirit. And of course, how many people have the spirit? All Christians, right? Romans eight says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. First Corinthians 12 says, we have all by one spirit been baptized in the body of Christ and been given gifts by the spirit. So we have Every believer has the spirit dwelling in them. Look at verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorceries, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you that people who produce fruit like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. A little modified version there. People who practice these things, bear this fruit, don't go to heaven, is what he's saying. But the fruit of the Spirit dwelling in somebody produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. What is Paul saying here? Everyone is known by the fruit of their life. That's how you're known. That's how everybody else knows you. Turn over to 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5. Verse 24. Paul says this. The sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also the deeds which are good are quite evident and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Notice they follow before or after. They are not just evident, but quite evident. And do you know what the word evident means in the Greek? Evident. Quite means quite. Cannot be concealed means cannot be concealed. Clear, clear. Turn over to Second Timothy three. Paul's talking about the end times, and he says this, verse one, Second Timothy three. But realize this: in the last days, difficult times will come. 
For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers God. But notice this, they're holding to a form of godliness. But look at what their fruit is. They're religious, but look at their fruit. They're holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. In other words, they've denied the power of the gospel, though they are very religious in holding to their form of godliness. Counsel, avoid such men as these. Why? For among them are those who enter into households, captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and ever able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres, the two magicians in the Exodus story, opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, reject in regard to the faith. Here it is, notice this. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. Obvious, clear, evident, cannot be concealed. Do you hear that? Turn over to 1 John. This will be our last text along this line. 1 John chapter 3. John is talking about how we need to display love and he's saying the same thing Jesus is saying in our text. And he says in verse 10 these words. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Do you see why Jesus taught this simple but profound truth? Because there's so many people wanting to say, oh, so-and-so is getting into heaven. Oh, you're a Christian. I mean, your fruit's bad, but you're in. No, you're not. That is not what the scriptures say. Now, we're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about what you practice as a way of life. What is the norm of your heart attitudes, the norm of your character, the norm of your behavior? And I'm not talking just about Sunday morning when there's a whole bunch of people watching and, you know, you're on your very good behavior and you've got high accountability. I'm talking about what's the normal pattern of your life. If you live like a rat, you're a rat. That's just it. Of course, the only cure is to realize what you really are. To realize that your life is full of bad fruit. I mean, you can go up to the thorn bush and put apple tree. But that doesn't make it an apple tree. The label does not change what it is. There is only one thing that changes you from the briar and thorn bush into the grape or the fig. And that is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. To realize right now that the axe is lifted up and it's pointed at your roots. To use John the Baptist's terminology. 
And that God Almighty is commanding you to repent and turn from your sins and receive the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins. I mean, Jesus didn't come and die for nothing. He died to save sinners. He didn't raise from the dead for nothing. He rose from the dead to demonstrate that he had the power to conquer death so that we would be enticed to place our faith in him knowing that he overcame death. And if you have not done this, you are not of Jesus. You're bad fruit. You're a bad tree. Secondly, you need to consider how this text applies to those around you. Parents, don't tell your children that they're saved if they're not bearing fruit for Jesus as a pattern of their life. You know, you can tell them, well, if we see you growing in the Lord, if we see you bearing fruit, then we're going to have assurance that you are a good tree. We see you rebellious, we see you bearing bad fruit, we'll have assurance you are not a good tree. Don't keep reminding them, listen, you're saved, you're saved, you're saved. Parents do this all the time. And, and you know, they are, they're going to die on this one. My child is saved. Don't you dare question my child's salvation. Well, that doesn't make them saved. I don't care how dogmatic, I don't care how passionate you are. I don't care how definitive you are and how zealous you are to defend your child's right to be called a Christian if they don't bear fruit. In keeping with repentance, they're a bad tree and fire's coming. That's what the scriptures teach. And you know, you can say, well, uh-uh, but that doesn't change the word of God. And many parents are so convinced that because their child at some early age felt bad and prayed a prayer or whatever that they're saved, you know, they go, well, they're a good girl. They're a good, well, there's a lot of good girls and good boys that come from pagan families who never even share the gospel with them. General good average behavior doesn't mean your child is transformed by the grace of God. And if you keep giving them assurance, you're saved, you're saved, you're saved, you'll never lose your salvation and don't ever doubt it. And I don't care how you live your life. I don't care if you become a Satan worshiper. You are in, you are in, you are in. And if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, 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 hey. You know, I see some things in your life, man. I, you know, you're living like an unbeliever. Don't you tell me. You know, don't you say my child is. You may be aiding Satan in their ongoing delusion and helping work for him to damn them to hell. Do you want to do that? I would hope not. You may be raising tares in the church. Fertilizing them, watering them. Your wheat, your wheat, your wheat. And you know what? It may be too late. There are people, and we've heard the testimonies here during baptism, which grew up in Christian homes, which went to Christian schools, which learned the gospel forwards and backwards, could tell it to you forwards and backwards, and then came to a place in their life where, you know, they realized, I'm a rat, and I need Jesus. And became saved and then had a transformed life. Did they know the jargon? Yeah. Were they hanging around the sheep? Yeah. Did they call themselves Christians? Yeah. They show up on Sunday? Yeah. Were they involved in ministry? Some were. 
But parents, you need to realize that it's your responsibility as a parent to say no more than what the scriptures teach. If somebody repents and they do believe, yes, they will be saved and yes, they can never lose their salvation. But that's not all the Bible says. The Bible says you will know them not merely by what they said at a point in time, but by the fruit of their life right now and ongoing. What is their fruit? I mean, every fruit tree, even a good fruit tree has a bad apple or bad grapes or whatever periodically. But what is the norm? What is the pattern here? It's obvious and evident trees are known by their fruit. And again, this doesn't mean that your perception of people is flawless. You know, we talked about judgment last week and I can't preach that whole sermon again. But yeah, we have unrighteous judgment. Sometimes we make judgments about people and we know very little about them. We've never spent any time with them. We've never talked to them. We've never, you know, witnessed their life. We don't know if they read their Bible or study the Bible or where they serve. But to us, they just look like they're nominal Christians. You know, that person may be great in the kingdom of heaven. And the reason you don't know anything about them is because they always serve behind the scenes and they don't attract attention to themselves because they're so godly. On the other hand, there are those people who are out there on the front and they're, you know, carrying the flag and they're shouting and yelling and hooping and hollering and doing all the Christian deeds and going to all the the things and involved in ministry and talking the lingo. And they're like the people that Jesus spoke of in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Or Matthew includes a little bit that Luke leaves out. Matthew seven twenty one and 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Just claiming you know Jesus doesn't get you in. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Open the gate and throw them into hell, is what he's saying. Now, that is amazing, especially in light of the fact that these people know who Jesus is. They don't just say, Lord, they say, Lord, Lord. They they know he's not only a savior, man, they're calling him Lord, my master. And they're involved in church, and they're doing good deeds, and they think they're going to heaven. And they don't find out until judgment day that they're not there. That is a scary thought. These are the people whose parents said, oh, you're saved, you're saved, you're saved. Just keep doing these things. Keep practicing your cold, dead orthodoxy and you will get in. But you don't. So yeah, there are people who are godly and you may not know it. There are people who seem very godly and they may not be. The point is that Jesus is making though, although there's always exceptions, on the norm, what you see is the tree is known by its fruit. Now, if I were to ask you this question, you know, can you, can you read people's minds? Can you know people's motives? You say, well, no, you can't do that. And you know what? If you've confronted people in sin a lot, and uh, which gets to be something that you get to do when you're in the ministry and you're one of the elders, um, a lot of times you hear things like this. Well, you can't judge me. You don't know my motives. You can't read my mind. You ever heard that? Yeah. You know, maybe a relative or something. You're sharing the gospel with somebody. They're convicted. All of a sudden, hey, 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 you know, you know, you don't have x-ray vision. You know, you don't know what I'm thinking. You can't judge my motives. 
And you know what? Jesus knew that. And that's why he said what he did in verse 45, our next point. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth what is evil. Now let's stop there. Notice that Jesus has left the agricultural figures of speech and now he's talking about treasure of the heart. The word translated treasure is the Greek word thesaurus, which is what we get the English word thesaurus from. Amazing, isn't it? It comes straight across in the English. A thesaurus is a treasure trove of synonyms. And the word literally means storehouse, storeroom, or treasure chest. So the good man out of the good treasure chest of his heart brings forth good treasure... The bad, bad treasure. Now, this again seems rather obvious, doesn't it? And it seems like Jesus is saying the same thing he said in the two previous verses about trees. But he's not. And the slight difference is at the end of verse 45. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Notice here in the first two verses he's talking about deeds. And now he's talking about words. And so he's hitting everything. Words and deeds. You see how significant this is? You can't read my mind. I can't read your mind. But you know what? I can see how you're living your life and I can see how you're speaking. And that tells me about your heart and your mind. Not exactly. But you know, when I'm sitting there in my car and you know, some teenager pulls up next to me and their music is so loud... I can hear their music in their car better than I can hear my music in my car and the windows are rolled up. I know something about that guy. I mean, I don't, I've never met the guy. But I can tell you this, he doesn't care about other people. He doesn't care if they like his music or not. He, he, he has no respect for the rights of other people. I know that. I know that about him definitively. Because if he did, he wouldn't be doing what he's doing. It's like the people run around with spray paint and tag everything. Well, what is that? They have no respect for public property. You know that. I don't even know who they are. I didn't even see them. I just see what's left behind. You see a woman who's not dressed modestly and you know she knows better. What do you know about her? Well, you don't know her exact thoughts or whatever, but I'm telling you, she's fishing for attention from men. Actions reveal heart motives. Words Reveal heart motives. That's what Jesus is driving at here. What comes out your mouth is the overflow of what fills your treasure chest. So if bad comes out, bad treasure, good comes out, good treasure. Pretty easy, right? In Matthew 12, verses 34 through 37, Jesus used this same phrase on a different occasion. A lot of times Jesus teaches the same thing on multiple occasions. And he says this to the Pharisees who were judging him for doing works by the power of Satan. And this is what he said. You brood of vipers. And he's always very direct when he speaks to them. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks Out of that which fills the heart. Jesus' point is, listen, because you're evil, you can't speak the truth. 
And then he says the same thing he does in our text. And then in verse 36, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an account for it on the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Now, you know, for self-preservation's sake, I just have to make a comment on this because every time I read this verse, people come up to me, I get five or six, you know, worried that on the day of judgment, they're going to be standing before Jesus. And he goes, okay, when you were three, you said stupid. And when you were three, you said no, 395 times. Let's review them. And you know, all through your life, every negative thing, every wicked thing you've ever said, he's going to bring it up. He's going to remind you of it. He's going to kind of shame you. And you're going to have to go through some sort of purgatory before he says, okay, now that you've seen that you're a sinner, get in there. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is not talking about how to be saved with these Pharisees. What he's talking about is how our words indicate whether or not we are saved or not. He's not undoing justification by faith and saying that's out. It's now justification by words. No. He's talking about the outflow of our heart is an indicator of our true spiritual condition. Believers, remember, because they are forgiven in Christ, because Jesus' death, his blood shed for them, his atoning work, washes them from all sins. When they stand, when you stand before the Lord, if you're a believer, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. The only words that are ever going to be uttered before God that you said are words that you said for the glory of God and the power of the Spirit. All the bad are going to be burnt up like wood, hay, straw, and stubble. Man, that is great. So you don't have to go up there and say, okay, you know, this is going to take a long time. Every believer, while growing in the Lord, says things that are evil and wicked. We aren't talking about sinless perfection. Again, we're talking about the normal pattern of your life. You know, there's many times in my life where I wish I could take back what I said. Where you think, oh, that was dumb. That was unkind. That was mean or that was just flat out carnal and, you know, unedifying. It doesn't mean I'm going to hell. And if you do that, it doesn't mean you're going to hell. That doesn't mean you're saved by your words. No, Jesus is talking Not about the exception, but the pattern. What is the normal stuff that flows out of your life? Again, not a church in the foyer, you know, when you're talking to the person that you don't know in the pew next to you on Sunday. And I'm talking about when you're with your unbelieving buddies at work, doing your hobbies or whatever, when you're out in the world and there's no accountability from other believers. Then what do your words tell you? And if right now you're thinking to yourself, you know, garbage comes out. Bad tree, not saved need Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying here. Your mouth is the telltale sign of your heart. So you say to yourself, okay, all right. You know, I'm either growing in my, what I say, or I am realize I just have bad treasure trove. And that's why my mouth is so wretched um, you know, and again, when you're new in the Lord, you know, you're growing. And so sometimes you're, you, you say things that just aren't real good. 
that's one of the exciting things about young believers. You know, they come into my office and they're telling me about all the things they, they, you know, been learning in the Lord. And all of a sudden these four letter words start popping out, you know, and they don't even realize it, you know, and God's been teaching me this and, you know, out this thing comes, it's like, whoa, um, somebody hasn't uttered that word in my office in a while. And they don't even notice, you know, and you have to say, Hey, let me just tell you here. Do you know what you just said? Uh, no, what? You said this. I did? Oh, I'm so sorry. It's like, well, hey, you know, God's the one you got to deal with, but you probably want to be a little bit more careful there. Yeah, we're all growing. Okay, we're all growing. And if you're a young believer, you know, you're growing. And that's okay. We're not talking about that either. We're talking about those who go to church for a long time, who know God's word, who know what God's word says, and yet they know. They just have sewer coming out. They twist the truth. They lie. They gossip. They talk about others. They cut people down. Their, their whole life is about diminishing others, exalting themselves, and just vileness and swearing and cussing and just filth comes out, lies, deceit, unrighteous judgments. So if that's you, you need to get saved. You need to come to Christ. You just need to realize bad treasure, bad words, no salvation. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. And just admit it and humbly turn from your sins. Receive Christ. He'll save you. He'll transform you and he'll give you a new heart. Not a perfect heart. A lot of people have a misunderstanding about new heart. New heart does not mean perfect heart. New heart means a heart that now can be reprogrammed for the glory of God. You remember what Romans 12.2 says? Romans 12.2 talks about, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the ongoing renewing of your mind. And how does that happen? Psalm 119.11, thy word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against thee. That you begin to treasure God's word. Or as Paul says to the Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell within you richly with all wisdom and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, notice the two categories he mentions, in word or deed. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Do it for the glory of God. That is exactly what Jesus is teaching in our text. Whatever you do, in word or deed, make sure the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly. So, you got bad life, you got bad words, get saved. If you are saved, get the word of God dwelling in you richly. Read your Bible, study your Bible, listen to sermons, go to Bible studies, be involved in discipleship group. You know, read books that are saturated with the scriptures, not those Christian fluff books. You go page after page and is there any scripture in here? Go to the ones that man have scriptures and quotations and brackets and footnotes and you're looking, you know, and everything's about the explanation of a passage. Those are the kind of books you want. Not that I'm okay and you're okay and, you know, Jesus loves you and, yeah, it's great being a Christian. Get psyched. Those books don't sanctify you. They just keep you happy in your stagnated self. 
Second, you need to guard your heart. As you put God's word in your heart, you need to guard your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. You guard it with all diligence. Because your whole life flows from your heart. All your actions, all your words, all come from the well of your soul. So you have to guard it. You ask yourself, well, how do you do that? Wear a Kevlar vest? No. Your heart, not the pumper, your emotions, your thoughts, your will, your intellect, your mind, receive information through your senses. What you see, what you taste, what you touch, what you smell. And so if you're going to guard your heart, you have to guard primarily what you see and what you hear. Those are the two huge gates. If you want to learn more about it, get John Bunyan's allegory, The Holy War. It's all about this very thing. And you just think about your life right now. Is there anything in your life right now that's defiling the good treasure of your heart? Just think about it. Can you think of something, something coming to mind now where you're kind of sticking the sewer pipe in your mouth and opening the valve in your ears, in your eyes, soaking in it, marinating in it. You know, it's amazing. You can think, well, you know, I'm trying to grow in Godliness. I'm doing my Bible thing. I'm trying to put a little bit in. Then you're dumping all the sewer in there. You're dumping all the sewer in there. You've got to guard your heart because if you don't guard your heart, you just won't make progress. So guard it. So as you leave here today, remember that trees produce fruit after their kind. So what does the fruit of your life tell others about the God who is your Savior and Lord? Secondly, remember as you leave here, your words tell other people about the treasure of your heart, what's really in your heart. Your actions tell people what's in your heart. Your actions and your words tell people about your motives and your heart's desires. So if your fruit is bad and the treasure of your heart is bad, you need Jesus. You need to be saved. You're not a Christian. But if you see growth in that area and you see that you're progressing in, in your words and your deeds and that God is changing your life and you're, you're not perfect, but you're getting on, then, hey, keep pumping the word in there. Fill up your heart with God's word, with God's truth, and it will flow out in actions and words and guard your heart. You know, that is that little children's song. Now, be careful, little eyes, what you see. You know that one. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Why? Because God's watching. That's why. Because God is watching. And you have to guard your heart. And so as you go out into the world, as you leave here today, look at the fruit. Look at your children's fruit. You know, that aunt, that uncle. Instead of going over there going, well, Granny, I'm so glad you know the Lord even though you don't love him. (laughs) Say, Granny, you've got a bad tree. You need Jesus. That's how you love granny. Not by encouraging her she's going somewhere where the scriptures say she's not. So trees are known by their fruit. 
The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. It's obvious, it's evident, and it cannot be concealed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and your kindness in this text as we look at how Jesus so simply and so clearly tells us beyond a shadow of a doubt how we can evaluate our lives And Father, if there are those here now who realize they are living in hypocrisy, that their life is full of bad fruit and bad words, I pray that they would fear the judgment which is to come upon them if they do not repent, that they would see the love of Christ demonstrated in the cross and his resurrection set there before them, that they would, by your grace, turn from their wicked way and unrighteous thoughts and turn their hearts towards Jesus and be saved and that you would begin to transform them as you give them a new heart and change it from one glory into the next. And Father, for those who do know you here and are at various stages of their walk with you, I pray that we would remember that your honor, your glory, your name is at stake, that people know you by how we live and how we speak. So, Father, may we not be so self-centered, always thinking about what people are thinking about us, but may we be God-centered and always be thinking about what they're thinking about you by watching and listening to us. And, Father, we just pray all of these things in your name, trusting that you will accomplish your goodwill in us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.